Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. No. Alle tiders fabeldyr Den går løs på selv de største snabeldyr Hænger vild, spruder ild, skræmmer selv en rød sild Kom kun frem, lille pus, den er for tillikus På sin ryg, den har en masse store skæld den så skriger alle fald farvel Skarpe kløer, vingefang, mindst en kilometer lang Kom kun frem, lille pus, den er alpatilikus Richard, you probably thought I was going to play Tivoli Nights by Berta Wilkie that is in one of the movies we're going to talk about, but I didn't. I played a song called The Tillicus Song. This is by Dirk Passer, who's one of the actors in the movie. It's from the Danish version. It was cut from the U.S. release. So I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. It's on YouTube as its own little music clip. That's a little bit of trivia that I was not aware of. So that's kind of cool. I have lots of little tidbits about this movie, and I did know the difference, you know, that there were some differences. I didn't know that there was a a musical number that was was cut out. It had so much to do with the movie. It was really relevant. I, you know, it's kind of like the travel log section that we'll be talking about. It's like, oh, let's let's drive around and get a view of Denmark. Reptilicus, obviously, what we're talking about. That's one of our movies. What's the other one? Reptilicus is what it is. But when you talk Godzilla, then you're you're in a whole nother category. And I almost don't want to put Godzilla and Reptilicus in the same category. Well, it's the opposite ends of the spectrum. It, exactly. The other film is Godzilla versus The Thing, which is perhaps better known now as Godzilla versus Mothra, the original Godzilla versus Mothra. That's a classic. Is it Godzilla versus Mothra or Mothra versus Godzilla? You've got me questioning if I wrote <laughs> down the wrong wrong thing or the right thing or The Thing, as we're talking about, because the remake in the 90s, I think, was Godzilla versus Mothra, right? I think they put Godzilla first. So I think the original, when they marketed it, was Godzilla versus The Thing or Mothra versus Godzilla. Yeah, it's in IMDb as Mothra versus Godzilla. Usually we're sticklers for the original and we'll watch the foreign language subtitled version. But this time we're being authentic and we are watching the dubbed version, Godzilla versus The Thing. We're traveling back to 1968 to see this. This one, we, we are going against the grain, but we're trying to be authentic to the time period. Exactly. So how else are we being authentic? Tell us where we're going and when we're going. It is August here in 2023, so it's only appropriate as summer is beginning to wind down. This is our third and final month in the fourth annual summer at the drive-in. So uh, we're going back to Labor Day weekend in 1968, and we are going to the Lakeshore Drive-In in Greece, New York. And I've got all sorts of little fun facts and figures to to talk about. But I think before we do, we we need to introduce ourselves. Do we? We didn't introduce ourselves. Okay. Well, I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. And And since we're... I'm sorry. I'm going to say, and this is the Classic Horrors Club podcast. The most episode. We never say the episode, and I think we should. This is episode 83. It is. We're inching our way towards 100. 
Well, give us those tidbits about the drive-in. Tell us. Okay, so the Lakeshore Drive-In. We're going to Greece, New York, as I said, Labor Day 1968, because on that particular night, they were playing the Thing-O-Rama, the biggest thing in town. Four films at the Lakeshore Drive-In. This was kind of a marketing thing, so they weren't the only drive-in doing it. Destroy All Monsters, the 1968, which was then new, the latest Godzilla film. We've talked about that before on the podcast. Uh, I think it was during the summer at the drive-in a couple years ago, I believe. Conga is speech, as I should say, let me back up. Number one, Monsters in Revolt, Destroy All Monsters. Then movie number two, Mighty Fury, Conga in color. (laughs) Then, of course, number three is Godzilla versus The Thing terrifying and number four invincible not really reptilicus four fun films and we're going to kind of reverse the order a little bit we're going to talk about reptilicus first because technically that's the oldest movie and then we're going to save godzilla for last because you want to go out on a on a more classic film if that gives you any idea where reptilicus conversation (laughs) is headed let's go let's talk about the lakeshore drive-in it opened on july 1st 1950 uh, with the Roy Rogers movie Down Dakota Way and a Marine O'Hara, Marine O'Hara, Marine O'Hara film called Baghdad. Had room for 1,100 cars, was located on Ling Road between Dewey Avenue and Greenleaf Road. It actually uh, stayed in business throughout the 50s and 60s and, and 70s and 80s and even on into the 90s. And this is where it does kind of get weird a little bit. So it closed on September 5th, 1992 with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Unlawful Entry. It was the last operating drive-in in Monroe County. On May 5th, 1993, well, they announced that the theater was not going to be open for the summer of 1993. And they very quickly decided to dismantle it, which I thought was kind of weird. It seemed like they had like maybe an idea for the property. So they started dismantling it on May 5th, 1993. And then there was a fire. A blowtorch apparently ignited a pile of old wood that was near the screen. It ended up burning down the screen and the office underneath. On May 13th, just over a week later, they demolished the site. That's how quickly this whole process worked. I'm not saying there is anything suspicious about all of that, but it sounds kind of weird. We're going to close the theater and we're going to quickly dismantle it. Oh, there's a fire. Let's collect the insurance and we'll demolish all the evidence a week later. (laughs) The site remains undeveloped to this day. They did nothing with the land. You would think if they were rushing to dismantle it, they had a plan for it, but apparently they didn't. Aerial shots clearly show where the projection booth once stood, and you can see the curved outline of the roads. Trees, you know, have a tendency to grow in some spots, but you can kind of see the curves. There is a building at the front end of the property close to the street that apparently wasn't there at the time when they closed, but behind it, the remains are still visible. It's sat for the last 30 years, basically, nature taking over the spot. Kind of weird. At that time, movie tickets were about $1.30, and popular candy of the day included, and I think you hate these candies, Necco. No, I've never heard of Necco. The little Necco wafers? 
Never? Really? Okay. Yeah. Maybe somebody else said that. Uh, I mm. actually love the Necco wafers. They actually got bought out, I believe, a few years ago, and then they got brought back. So mm. uh, they're an acquired taste. Some people hate them. I've always loved them. You can always find those things at places that have like uh, the retro candy or whatever. Sugar Babies was popular in 1968. I remember that being a candy of choice when I was a kid. Whenever I went to the movies, I had to have Sugar Babies. And then I got all sorts of cavities. And then I was told I couldn't have sugar babies or chiclets ever again. And I don't think I've had sugar babies since. I actually saw them at the Dollar Tree a couple of weeks ago. We were going to see Indiana Jones. I almost got them out of nostalgia's sake. But my teeth and all of the various dental work I've had said, don't do it. And I didn't. Dots was popular in 1968. Candy cigarettes. I don't think you can find those anymore, but... I remember enjoying those as a kid. They didn't taste that great, but yet, I don't know. I remember having those. Swedish fish, Swedish fish, which I thought was kind of funny considering Reptilicus being made in Denmark. I know different countries, but still kind of the same. Swedish fish had been around since the 1950s, but in 1968, they were having an upsurge of popularity and they're still pseudo popular today. You can still find Swedish fish. I don't know that they're the most popular candy. Let's do a quick roll call. We have four new members this month, members of our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Welcome to Steve Case, Brian Rigger, Gregory Cooper, and Rudy Shelton. We are glad to have you. Absolutely. Welcome one and all. I know Steve Case has got a new book out, posted about that on the page. You know, we're always getting new members, which I always find interesting. I'd love to know where people found but, you know, I don't know. If you're a new member, let us know. How did you find us? Was it our postcard at Monster Bash? Was it a random search looking for classic horror movies? Was it a suggestion from a friend? We have two pieces of feedback. One came uh, through our email address, which is classichorrors.club at gmail.com. It's from our friend Vince Simonelli. He said he really enjoyed the last episode. He liked the choice of films. Legend of Hell House is such a great film, and Rosemary's Baby is a certified classic. The Blu-ray for Rosemary's Baby has a featurette that answers one of the points you brought up. Tony Curtis was a friend of both Mia Farrow and Roman Polanski, and Polanski thought it would be good for Mia to recognize the voice but not be able to place it. As you mentioned, the building was actually the Dakota, famous for where John Lennon was murdered. Monster Kid Fact, Boris Karloff also lived at Dakota when he was in New York and performing on Broadway. I don't think we mentioned that part. I don't think we did. That's cool. The Summer at the Drive-In episodes may be my favorite episodes that you do. I'm looking forward to the next one. Well, thank you, Vince. And I don't know if you knew at that point it was going to be Reptilicus, but here it is. Here's our next one. (laughs) And the other one came from our YouTube channel, which I thought was kind of cool. I feel like we don't really mention it enough, but we do have a YouTube channel with a video companion to the audio podcast. This comment's from Michael Dodd, another fun summer drive-in episode, guys. You've prompted me to revisit The Legend of Hell House and Rosemary's Baby in my own double feature. Not nearly as epic as seeing at the drive-in in 1973 at the age of 14, but still pretty cool. I do remember my mom and dad leaving me off at my grandmother's house when they saw Rosemary's Baby in 1968. It would be many years until I saw it on home video. Creepy as hell in a good way. You guys forgot to mention a couple of great Blu-ray releases at the end of your podcast. Mondo Macabro's excellent Euro Horror Horror Blu-rays for The Witch's Mountain and The Other Side of the Mirror. 
love Patty Shepard and Emma Cohen. Looking forward to more drive-in monstering next month with the Big G and Riptelicus, who had a cool Charlton comic, which became Reptosaurus with issue three. Thank you, Michael. We appreciate you watching the video and take taking a moment to comment. It's always cool that people take something from the from the show that it leads them to either discover a film or revisit a film. Cool. Thank you. We don't have any voicemail this month, but if you would like to leave one for next time, our number is 616-649-2582 or 616-649-LOVE. Lovely, lovely. Okay, that is, I guess, all of old business, unless you know of any other loose ends we need to follow up on. Set the stage. What's going on in the world, in the world of entertainment, if we didn't choose to go to the drive-in this weekend? So I chose Labor Day weekend, 1968. The movies are from 61, 62, 64, you know, that time frame. But since we know the drive-in experience that we're going to is 1968, that's the weekend I chose. Top songs for the week of August 31st, 1968. Before we get to the top 10, the top rising songs of the week, the Bee Gees, long years before they were singing Night Fever and dancing in the in the clubs. I've got to get a message to you. Eventually went on to become the first of an eventual 15 top 10 hits. <laughs> Another future hit, One, Two, Three, Red Light by 1910 Fruit Gum Company. And for those of you listening at home, you don't see the quizzical look on Jeff's face via <laughs> Zoom. Yes, it actually went to the top five. Wow. First couple of songs in the top 10, songs I'm not familiar with. I played them and nothing, no recollection whatsoever. So let's see if Jeff knows them. Number 10, Stay in My Corner by the Dells. No. Okay. Number nine, I Can't Stop Dancing by Archie Bell and the Drells. Not that I know of. Okay. Number eight, I think you might know this one. You're All I Need to Get By by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. I don't know for sure. You might recognize it when you hear it. Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell, they were big. Not a song that gets played a lot these days, but back in the day, you might have heard it. I guarantee you, you know the song at number seven. I'm willing to bet the farm on it. <laughs> Harper Valley PTA oh, yeah. by Jeannie C. Riley. Now, yeah, absolutely. Did you know? I didn't know it was that old, though. Yeah, yeah, it was. Number six, you'll know this one in multiple versions of it, but you might not know this version. You Keep Me Hanging On by Vanilla Fudge. Number five, we're in classic territory now for the rest of this. Number five, Sunshine of Your Love by Cream. Number four, Hello, I Love You by The Doors. Oh, yeah. Number three, interestingly enough, Light My Fire, a cover version of The Doors hit by Jose Feliciano. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar if I was to say to you, hey, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Come on, baby, light my fire. Okay, number two, Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf. And number one, 
People got to be free by the rascals. Third of an eventual five weeks at number one. Hmm. That was the top 10 songs for the week of August 31st, 1968. Now, if you didn't want to go to the drive-in, but you wanted to go maybe to a movie theater, you had a, a selection of films in 1968 to choose from. Did you know number one for the box office of September 4th, 1968 was Rosemary's Baby? How about that? That's... Number one for the fourth out of an eventual five weeks. Other big movies of 1968 included Valley of the Dolls, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Graduate, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and Funny Girl. Other horror movies from 1968 included The Devil Rides Out, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, The Green Slime, Night of the Living Dead, Spider Baby, and Witchfinder General. Now, if you wanted to stay home, I don't have the listings necessarily for that weekend. They were in repeats, and the listings I found online were rather incomplete. So I'm cheating a little bit, but I think this is a lot more exciting because Labor Day weekend would have only been probably a week or two before the fall television season started. Here's the fall 1968 TV season lineup for the three main networks. ABC is full of a bunch of stuff people have probably forgotten. Operation Entertainment. This was a musical comedy variety show specifically aimed at past and present military veterans. Mm. How specific is that? It ran for 31 episodes and then disappeared. Felony Squad. This was a crime drama with Howard Duff. This actually ran three seasons back in the day, 73 episodes. I'll admit, I've never heard of Felony Squad. How about the Don Rickles show? This was a variety show. It ran for 17 episodes. A Western that I'm actually familiar with, Guns of Will Sonnet. This stars Walter Brennan and Dak Rambo. It ran for two seasons, eventually 50 episodes. A kind of a short run, but it's out there. And then Judd for the Defense, a legal drama with Carl Betts. Never heard of it. Ran for two seasons, 50 episodes. Uh, over at CBS, I think we know what's going on in CBS. We mm -hmm. have the Wild Wild West, Gomer Pyle, USMC, and the CBS Friday Night Movie. NBC, we had the High Chaparral. I think they were in their third season of an eventual four. The name of the game, I think there's a Boris Karloff episode actually in this. I think this is maybe one of the last things he did, I think. The name of the game starred uh, Tony Franciosa, Gene Barry, and Robert Stack. And here's my Star Trek connection. Mm -hmm. Friday nights, 9 o'clock, Star Trek Season 3. After Star Trek had been canceled after the second season, the letter-writing campaign that was headlined or headed up by B. Joe Trimble brought Star Trek back for a third season. It was supposed to be Monday nights. Gene Roddenberry was fired up. And then the, the network kind of screwed him and said, no, we're actually going to move it to Friday nights at nine, which back then was the kiss of death. Gene Roddenberry, he got upset and essentially more or less left. He was the executive producer and Fred Freiberger was brought in for the third season as the main producer. Gene Roddenberry didn't have much to do in season three. Star Trek kind of limped along in the third season 
it's the weakest of the three classic seasons. Seasons one and two, I think, are better. But there's some good episodes in season three. Anyway, that was the TV listings for Friday night's fall of 1968. That was what was happening outside of the drive-in theater. We've just pulled into our parking spot, rolled down the windows, put in the speakers. It looks, yeah, I think we've got some time to go to the snack bar. Talk about sugar babies, I believe. That's what I'm going to have to get. I'm going to go with with a hot dog, a hot cup of coffee. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) No, I knew that was coming. No, no, no hot cups of coffee. Your attention, please. All new hotshot electric in-car heaters have been installed for your comfort and convenience. Just insert heater through car window and turn on the switch. When leaving, please turn switch off and replace on speaker post. Warning, high voltage. For your own safety, do not attempt to repair or remove wires. Do not attempt to open heater unit. If you need assistance, please notify the theater box office or concession manager. starts in one minute. It's a piece of skin, like leather. From all corners of the earth they gather to study the mystifying frozen fossil, a reptilian tail that grows into a giant of terror. It's alive! It's loose! You have been invited here to see for yourselves One of the most amazing events in the annals of scientific history. Reptilicus, a monstrous massive beast whose astounding appearance causes panic. Reptilicus approaching the city, repeat. Reptilicus approaching the city. This is Grayson. All units. Reptilicus, an annihilating mastodon, immune to all known weapons of warfare, creating chaos such as mankind has never before known. Richard, you know, if we were in Japan right now, we would have just watched Slaughter of the Frozen Evil Primitive Beast Reptilicus. Unfortunately, we aren't in Japan. We're in the United States. And we just watched Reptilicus. Start us off. What'd you think? (laughs) Well, we should say we watched the English version. There's actually two versions of this movie made. 
There is the Danish version, which runs about 10 minutes longer than the U.S. version, the English version, whatever you want to call it. Two different directors and literally two different versions made. We're not just talking different dubbed versions and different edits. For the most part, all with the same cast, with one exception, which I'll talk about. The director of the Danish version... Okay, here's my disclaimer, and I should have mentioned this at the beginning of the episode. names are worse than the Italian, the Spanish, anything we've done before. In this episode, yeah, we've got Japanese words in the second half, and we've got all the, the Danish in the first half. I apologize to everyone in those respective countries. I am going to murder and butcher every single one of these names as if I was Jason and Freddie and, and everyone else. I've got a chainsaw. I'm going to butcher him. I apologize up front. The director of the Danish version is Pool Bang. He did 24 films. This isn't his only film. We should say right out the gate, though, that this is Denmark's first and last giant monster movie. With great reason why it's their, their last giant monster movie. When we start going through the cast and mentioning credits and stuff, some of these actors had a lot of other films, but this was the one film that they're most remembered for because it was the only film that really broke outside the Denmark region. The U.S. version was directed by Sidney Pink, whose really other film of note is Journey to the Seventh Planet. I've seen that before, and, and I don't know if I would say it's better or worse than Reptilicus. Reptilicus might be it might be more enjoyable from the aspect of Reptilicus is one of those films that's just so bad. There's so much craziness going on the screen. You just it's enjoyable on that level. Now it was written by, and I always screw this name. This is probably one of the easier names. What is it? I B Melchior? Is that how it's or is it Ib Melchior? I've heard it pronounced both ways, but I don't think that they're both right. You know who I'm talking about. Yes, yes. You just don't know how to pronounce it. I don't know how to pronounce it right. You're just letting me throw myself out there. (laughs) I'm drowning drowning at the moment. And Jeff's just sitting on the side. He's like, ah, he's in the quicksand. I'm not going to throw him a branch. (laughs) So he directed The Angry Red Planet and The Time Travelers. He was also a writer on numerous films. He wrote episodes of 13 Demon Street, the anthology series that was hosted by Lon Chaney Jr., He also did The Outer Limits, Journey to the Seventh Planet, which we'll mention this several times, Planet of the Vampires, Robinson Crusoe and Mars, and the original Death Race 2000, amongst others. Sidney Pink also was involved in the writing of Reptilicus. Do you want me to go through the cast now before we start? No, 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 let's just talk first, like, what do we think of it? But I have a question in a way, especially with the narrator talking, it kind of reminds me of what Godzilla King of the Monsters versus Gojira. Mm. I have a feeling it's not going to be that drastic a change. Like if we saw the Danish version, I don't believe it's going to be a masterpiece that we just butchered no. for the United States. But I'm curious about that. So curious, in fact, eBay, I found someone selling the Danish version and I purchased it and awaiting for it at this very moment. I'm curious. I know that it did get a DVD release about 20 years ago. There is a video on YouTube that does a side-by-side comparison. Oh, really? At 15 minutes, so it's not the whole film, but it does do a side-by-side comparison of certain scenes. Yeah, there's definitely some angle differences, but some of them look exactly the same. The cast was 
all the same for both films, with one exception. There was one person that was replaced in the English version because she couldn't speak English well enough. And then ultimately they dubbed everyone anyway. So it was kind of like I felt bad for her. She she got removed. But it was interesting that they didn't even really look alike. They went with a totally different route for the, the person we do see in the film. And that's an interesting point because I had trouble following who was who. And they didn't accidentally leave the two actresses in the American version, did they? There was the woman that came from Inesco and that was Connie. And then so Connie, but I did not put those two together. I'm sure they didn't, but it's just, that's my point is it was hard for me to follow who was who. Well, Connie was the character actually that got replaced. Marley's Barons played Connie in the U.S. version and she's blonde hair. Bodil Miller played her in the Danish version and she's, from what I could tell in the print is kind of faded on YouTube, but she looks like she's got, she almost looked a little older. She's got more of like a black hair with maybe some, some graying in it. Hmm. No offense to Miss uh, Bodil Miller, but not as attractive as the, uh, as Marley's Barons and the U S version. But then ultimately everybody's voice got dubbed because Sydney Pink felt that the Danish accents in the U.S. version had too much of a sing-song way about them, and he felt like American audiences wouldn't take it serious. Well, the one in our version was lovely enough because when she enters, they say, we are not accustomed to seeing such a lovely woman in science. Let's backtrack. How did you like the movie? (laughs) This is my second time seeing Reptilicus. And I really don't remember one thing about the movie. I think my brain said, no, no, we must purge this knowledge. Reptilicus is, for me, it's one of those movies that it was bad, but it became enjoyable to watch in the sense that there is some really odd stuff in this movie Odd choices are made. There's there's some some mistakes made along the way. I can tell you if, if this is any indication, you really must turn off your scientific brain very early on. It's not a well-made film. They had a limited budget. I think they did all they could with what they had at the time, but there is some pretty big deficiencies. When you have a movie like this, you got to have a monster that comes across as convincing. And Reptilicus, it, it's just not as convincing throughout parts of the film. There's parts where it's like, I can go with it. And other parts, it was like, oh, this this is pretty cheap. But I think it was some of this, some of the dialogue and some of the characterizations. Most of this cast, this is not like a cast of unknowns. They had stuff, and some of them very popular over in, in Denmark. Maybe it's the dubbing makes it change the the intent of the original actors. You have that original Danish version when you get it. I'll be curious to see what your comparison is. You might say, hey, this is a much better film. It's kind of like watching Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and Gojira. They come off really as almost two separate movies in a way. Gojira is, to me, much darker and much more serious without Raymond Burr and without that the American dialogue making it into a much more average film. I've always loved Godzilla, but when I saw Gojira, I was like, oh, this is 
significantly better than Godzilla King of the Monsters. I didn't dislike Reptilicus. This is not a movie I want to rush out and see again. That's weird that you didn't remember it. I mean, it seems like, like, I feel like I'm never going to forget what I saw. Well, (laughs) what are your thoughts? Well, it comes with quite a reputation, and this was first time, and I have not watched it prior to this because of that reputation. That said, I didn't think it was as bad as I thought it was going to be. I mean, it's bad. I'm not not going to sugarcoat it, but I did enjoy it. I thought it was very enjoyable. It could just almost be a spoof of kaiju films. Yeah. There are some purposely funny parts, which I'm sure is intended to you know, lessen all the, the tension, but just a few little twists and it could be a pretty, a pretty good spoof. It's not anywhere close to being a serious movie. It's not going to be on the same level as a lot of the other kaiju films. You got character like the, the Peterson character played by, by Dirk's passer, who was obviously pseudo comic relief. Well, that's because he was recognized as the greatest Danish comedian of all time. I don't know how much competition that he had. He had some dialogue that actually is comical. That's where I'm like, well, is that really what they said? Or is it just the dubbing? Because sometimes the dubbing, certain words don't transfer from one language to the next. So then whoever's doing the dubbing, like, well, let's, we'll just use this and we'll dumb it down. And then it makes it sound worse than it is. I really am curious when you get the Danish version, what your thoughts are on that. It's got like an extra 10 minutes. Well, we know part of those missing minutes is going to be that song. Well, that's that. That's what I said. So we know part of that is an extra musical number, which probably is not going to help the film. Well, here's an example. This is how it could be a spoof. The piece of Rectilicus, its tail is in the freezer, right? And they make such a point about the temperature. Yes. You know, they close up on the thermometer and you've got to keep it at this temperature. So, you know, instantly, well, obviously the temperature is going to rise at some point, you know, because they made such a big deal about it. So then there's a storm and I'm thinking, oh, the power is going to go out. And that's but then it subverts my expectations because that's not how it melts. It's just that the scientist got sleepy, fell asleep at his desk and the door kind of opened. And I don't know how having a door open for a few minutes could really thaw it out as quickly as it did. It's just this weird mix of trope and possibly comedic and then like not following what you think is going to happen. It's just really weird. Well, let's just go one step back in that scene. While it's supposedly frozen, the one scientist goes in and easily cuts off. Yep. The piece. When you're looking at it, it's like, OK, well, the top part looks all nice and frozen, but then the meaty part of it is clearly not frozen because yeah. he's sitting there cutting it off. Where does that first scene take place? As they describe it, it takes place in the frozen mountains of Lapland in the Arctic Circle. What's the first scene you see as the narrator is telling us this is where it's at? For starters, there's not a flake of snow (laughs) anywhere. And we're seeing green foliage. And it's looking like they're almost like in a jungle. They're drilling. They're throwing a little wind sound effect to make it sound (laughs) like we're in the Arctic. Yes, they're all in that scene around the fireplace where they're all pseudo looking like it's cold. And they keep calling it like the frozen tundra. Really? There's maybe the frozen tundra in 2023 is it's all melting. 
I guess my glass was half full when I watched it because what I got out of that scene, I thought it was really cool when they were getting the the flesh or stuff out of the drill. I thought that was cool. The drill comes out and they're like moving through the mud. They find the flesh, you know, that's, that's a cool scene. That's one of the things about Reptile. Guess why I never watched it. I read the synopsis and it's like a, they find a piece of his tail and he grows from that. And I thought that is ridiculous. That <laughs> is just impossible. But I think they make a plausible argument for it in this movie. I they mean, do. They compare it to what earthworms and things yes. that actually do regenerate. Oh, OK, I can accept that. So if you're saying that it grows from this section, you know, the tail, right? And it grows in this big monster. So wouldn't that happen with any piece of flesh that was cut off of it? Wouldn't something grow from that? Because that's the kind of imply that all it's going to take is a little piece of flesh and it's going to grow from that. What happens to the piece that he cuts off and just throws into that bucket in the jungles? Shouldn't that be growing into something? Theoretically, flash forward, right? To spoiler alert, the end of the movie, you've got an arm at the bottom of the ocean that is twitching, implying that we're at Reptilicus 2 growing from that little piece of arm. So any piece of flesh that's cut theoretically should be growing. Well, and it's not just theoretically. That is part of the plot that they can't blow it up because he's going to scatter parts everywhere and grow. Yeah, so, so it's not theoretical. It's it's it's, it's established in the plot. The yeah. scientist, the PC cuts off in the lab. What they do with that? Do they yeah, fry it up that. and have it for dinner? No, it's sitting there in the lab, so it should be growing as well. You know, unless they destroyed it. Let's talk about Reptilicus itself because you said something that made me think: the wings. You have a monster with wings, and you don't see it fly. Ah. But you do. They, I know they shot and it looks, believe it or not, it looks so bad. I would like to see what was so bad that they couldn't put it in. Oh, there's a clip of it on YouTube. Oh, is there? Okay. There is. It's kind of dark. So it should be in the Danish version, actually. Okay, I think it's good. in the Danish version. That's part of the 10 minutes, actually. I didn't think it looked that bad. Watching this film, I kept thinking of the giant claw. The giant claw is actually not a bad film. The effects are in that movie. That's where the movie suffers. Some claim that. I love them. Honestly, I think the special effects in the giant claw work much better than Reptilicus. It works better. He has these little claws or something. You don't really see them all the time, but there's a scene near the end when one of the military people makes a sacrifice run. And I guess... Reptilicus was supposed to have maybe attacked him. It just looks like he fell flat on him. But when he yeah. did that, that's when you saw his little. So I didn't know were they trying to say that he grabbed him with those little claws, well, he had the little or... T Rex hands, right? So I was like, yeah. I got to move my entire body to swat you with my hand. It's kind of what it looked like. Yeah, it looked like. Hey, it's funny when they were describing the nature of him. Side note: they call him him the whole time. It's not it. I found that funny. Maybe it's in the Danish version where they determined what its gender was. But anyway. Does a worm have a gender? I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a big worm, right? They describe its nature. They say it's a mix between this. And they say the word this. I'm not just saying that because I can't remember it. And they show a picture of what I would say is a brontosaurus. So it's a mix of this and a reptile. I don't know my science, but isn't a dinosaur a reptile or not? It, well, I mean, no, it, it's 
<laughs> well, they're similar enough. I would not call Reptilicus a mix between a Brontosaurus and a reptile. Yeah, I agree with you there. What do you know about the special effects? Like, I've heard him called a sock puppet, which, no, I don't think he was, I don't think there was ever, like, a sock puppet part of it. <laughs> I don't and know. then a marionette. And I can see how, although, again, I'm giving it credit, I didn't see any strings, did you? No, I, I mean, I read that there were different versions, that there was more than just one. and And I caught this actually watching it, I was like, you're seeing it sometimes from afar, sometimes you're seeing it close up. It, to me, looked a little different sometimes. It's like yeah. there was some differences to it. Well, that's because they had multiple versions and they weren't all the same. There were subtle differences that are really visible now. Maybe not so much in, in you know, 19, was it 61? Yeah, 61 when this was released, June 12th, 1961. Might not have been as noticeable on the big screen. We see it now. The effects, they're kind of all across the board because for starters, I, I read basically the models that they used, the, the the town actually is considered to be better than some of the kaiju films. I don't know. Who, who considers it better? <laughs> because I think in some scenes, I'm like, yeah, certain angles and stuff, yeah, maybe a bit more detailed than some of the early Toho films. I'll give you that, Maybe. But then at other times, I'm like, no, clearly, when you look closer at some of these buildings, no, they're not. I question that. I think that was a maybe, you know, I know Sidney Pink believed that. And that's kind of what he went to Hollywood and gave them the spin. And other people kind of agreed over the years. I don't know if this was their first time using miniatures, but I almost have to be, right? If this is their first and last giant monster movie, what other opportunity would you have had to, to do that? There was one cool scene, and that was uh, when he was, like, had been in the open field, and then he's crawling, like, behind a cottage or something, and you only see, like, his tail, because the rest of him has gone by. Limited, that yeah. tail so looks limited. good. Yeah, I agree. A limited scene, right? Two special effects that really stand out. So, one, the scene where he's eating the farmer. Oh, my God, that was horrible. That, that yeah, was... was that, like, an animated person that went in? Well, it supposedly... And that's why I thought it was animated. It but, looked animated. But Dirk Melchior, the, the son of IB, played the farmer who gets eaten. So I don't know how much he played that farmer, or did they take an image and then superimpose? Okay. I can honestly say I believe that's the worst animated monster eating a person scene that I've ever seen because it, it didn't even look like it was somebody eating a doll, which I could I find a sock puppet eating a doll to be more convincing than <laughs> in this movie. Then you have the green slime, the green oh. slime acid, which doesn't look realistic in the sense that, I mean, it kind of, I like the idea of it, but it didn't look realistic. It looked, it didn't look like it was in the same shot. It's like, no, this is clearly something that was animated and added later. If you're calling it acid, Acid doesn't automatically set buildings on fire. It's like, you know, that acid apparently had the ability to spontaneously combust as well. Oh, I didn't even notice that because I was thinking I could have lived with that if they had shown one thing that that stuff did to somebody. First of all, he's not even like coughing or puffing his cheeks or blowing or anything. It just comes out of his mouth. With yeah. no. And then sometimes it'll cover the camera or it'll 
like sort of look like it's covering a person. I mean, it goes in front of them and then it just cuts. Like show us some smoldering bodies because the acid burned them. Something. Something. Just yeah. Did. Yeah. I didn't even get that it caused buildings to explode. The very end when they shoot the rocket into its mouth, I had to rewind because the first time I didn't see anything go in the mouth. And still, I didn't see it very well. I assume they shot something and did they show it going in his mouth? I thought the same thing. I, I knew that's where they were going with it. Yeah. It wasn't very visible. No. You know, should have been much more visible because that's a climactic moment, right? It's like, we should be seeing this thing go in there, but we didn't. Which I also thought was kind of funny because he's standing there, right, with the, with the launcher. You would think that there'd be a, it'd be loud, right? But you got like two guys standing right beside him. This is the intelligence of the characters or the or the writers you know it's too bad we can't drug him well number one why can't you i guess the skin is thick and they don't think they could get insert a needle or something but it's just that's the way it's written is it's like with the thermometer thing you know they're setting it up there's a lot of little things actually in this film that just kind of leave you scratching your head you get that in any big giant monster movie. There's always something that you're like, oh, okay, that's a leap of logic you got to take. But when they start adding up, I go into a giant monster movie. I know there's going to be something about this, a special effect that may not work as well, an explanation, something. But when it's this and this and this and this, all these little things that individually wouldn't ruin the movie. But when you start getting a long list of stuff, is it a parody at this point? Is it crossing that line of so bad it's good? Or is it just bad? I don't think it's bad, necessarily. Some would. I don't think it's a bad movie collectively, because I found some enjoyment watching it. Some of the enjoyment was from some of the... My God, you had to laugh. Can I tell you my favorite scene? Yes. I'm afraid it's going to be yours, so I want to say it before you do. (laughs) Okay. I don't know if it will be. The Drawbridge? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty, pretty funny. The mass crowd is running out of the city or wherever they're running, and there's a drawbridge. And it's obviously visible from who's controlling the bridge because yes. there's a window right there, and he's looking out. Why does he raise it? With Why does he raise it? Up? So that's, okay, that's just yeah. nothing compared to the fact when he sees people start falling over, which is cool. Yeah. He doesn't draw. He goes in the court, literally goes in the corner yes. and covers his eyes. Yes. He I had the power to close that bridge. Shouldn't have raised it in the first place. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Really? That's, I, that's a hilarious scene. That's a, like that's one of those, see, like I said, there's, that individually would just stand out as a funny scene. But when you've got so many other things, it's just kind of like after a while, and then all of a sudden it starts almost changing the intent of the movie. So I just, some random thoughts. I'm just, I've written some things. We'll just kind of rattle them off. Go through Music by Les Baxter. Les Baxter, one of the greatest musicians. I mean, I love Les Baxter. But his music at times, and he did the U.S. version, the music at times was really not in sync with what we were seeing on the screen. It was just kind of like circus music at one point, but it didn't go in sync with what we were seeing on the screen. This I was, wonder if he wrote it like during an earlier version before they. I, and I'm wondering, did he really see what the music would be synced up with? I'm willing to bet no. I'm thinking, hey, provide us some music for this and this. And then they plugged it in and you get the result that you do. I can't imagine that he would have written some of this music 
if he was said, here's the scene, here's our intent, write this song, because what you get is so opposite, doesn't make sense. So we get a travel log at one point where they just start showing us random stuff. We're going to go around Denmark and we're going to, or where is it, Copenhagen. We're going to show you this and we're going to show you this. And okay, so we got a travel log and then we stop off at, at, at Tivoli, which actually is still there. It is an amusement park and it is actually the third largest amusement park in, or excuse me, third oldest amusement park in the United States. Uh, it's been open since like the mid 1800s. Uh, the United States? I'm uh, not in the world. Sorry, oh. not, not in the United Sorry, third largest. Good lord, third oldest amusement <laughs> park in the world because it's been open since the 1800s. You know, the oldest one actually dates back to the 1700s, and it's in Vienna. In the movie, was the Tivoli an amusement park? Yes, I mean, that's... The, the, Why do you we, go to the Tivoli then for a sit-down dinner where there's a singer? So apparently this this place, this and I guess this would have been legit at the time, it's more of like a destination because there's also like gardens, then mm. there's also a place for like arts and entertainment. So it's it's a multi-purpose. So and it's fine not dining. Like, it's not like we're going to go to Disney World or Six Flags or whatever. And that's where we get the wonderful Tivoli Nights song that kind of stands out as kind of an odd thing. We get lots of stock footage that stretches out the time. A lot of movies did that back in the day. Sometimes you do it so much it really stands out, and it does in this case. We get blood sometimes. Is, like We'll see that there's some blood on Reptilicus, and then like we, we pan away and then go back, and then all of a sudden maybe it's a more close-up shot or a faraway shot. And there's not blood. <laughs> they switched socks and they went from the left foot to the right foot and they didn't put blood on both, both of the sock puppets. The nightclub singer was actually Birthday Wilkie and she was actually a legit singer. Sang fine for what it was. Towards the end of the film, after mere moments after Reptilicus has dropped dead and there's a scene where the, you know we've got the military and the scientists and so they're standing there. If you look in the background, there's a bicyclist that just kind of goes by <laughs> in the background. We've just gone from like a military attack on this giant monster. Here, here comes Sven riding in the background on his on his way to wherever he's going. I think that's about about it for stuff in the Well, movie. at least it gives us a very good idea. <laughs> uh, yeah. There was no credits in the in the US version. We just get the title. And then it just went right into the movie, which was not common back then. In a weird placement of the title. It wasn't like at the beginning and then the movie starts. It goes no, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. We should say that this was a, a, an American International Pictures release. They gave us a lot of good films, and then they gave us some films like Reptilicus. Samuel Arkoff was the one that made the decision. I think I said Sidney Pink earlier. He was the one that made the decision to redub. There was a novelization of the movie. Dudley Dean... Magahi, under the name Dean Owen, wrote the novelization, but decided to add a bunch of sex scenes into the book to spice it up, because sex and Reptilicus go hand in hand. <laughs> well, so, he is a little phallic. Well, may I, and I don't know, maybe that's where they went. But I know that Sidney Pink was upset that they did that to his movie, and he ended up suing Monarch Books. I don't know if you can find a copy of Reptilicus in paperback, I, but, you know, I'm kind of curious now as to 
the sex, sex scenes might have actually changed the intent of the film. Yeah, what we've got a theme here. What was the other movie we did where the book, oh, uh, Legend of Hell House, the book was supposed to be sexy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, we had some feedback earlier about Charlton Comics had did two issues of Reptilicus and then their copyright lapsed. They didn't have the right to use the name, but hey, they kept the comic going and they just renamed it Reptosaurus the Terrible and did issues three through eight. And Reptilicus actually makes an appearance in an issue of Gorgo as well. So an interesting, if you go with that, Reptilicus and Gorgo exist in the same universe. Coincidental, I knew this was coming up, but I'm I'm paging through, I'm sure an authorized version of Reptilicus number one that's posted on the internet. <laughs> and I missed, I must have nodded off. I missed the part in the movie where he reached up and grabbed a helicopter out of the sky. I don't remember that part. Yeah. Maybe that's so in the dangerous version anyway. with his little T-Rex hand. And I'll tell you something else. He so... had like been practically on his back. <laughs> <laughs> Not only did it change the Reptosaurus, I don't know how this came to be, but I was doing my research and Scary Monsters magazine about 20 years ago republished the uh, Reptosaurus comic series not one and two but three onward the full set in a volume but they call it scary saurus don't know inexplicable to me why not why not call it scary saurus and i will tell you i was kind of swept up reptilicus mania because i ordered that book as well only because it was on sale it was only 10 bucks from our friends at scary monsters so and i'm looking you can get the paperback decent price i mean 50 bucks i don't think it's bad really for something of the age something that rare because yeah let's go with the cast real quick i feel the urge to butcher some names <laughs> so i there were some interesting things with this cast bent mejding plays the character of svent 49 credits so he did some other stuff he's actually of the main cast he's the one that's still alive at the age of 86 Osborne Anderson played Professor Otto Martins, well-accomplished actor in, in Denmark, 133 credits. So he died at age 75 in 1978. The other scientist, Dr. Peter Dalby, played by Povel Waldecki, had 44 credits. He died in 1975 at the age of 75. So both scientists died at the age of 75. Mm. The two daughters, Lise and Car- Karen, who let's just say they were they were horny little things, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Anne Smyrner played Lisa Martins, 59 credits, including a Vincent Price film. She was in House of a Thousand Dolls. So she died in 2016 at the age of 81. Mimi Heinrich, who played Karen Martins, 23 credits, including Journey to the Seventh Planet. She died in 2017 at the age of 80. Kind of synced up. We continue. Two military guys. So Carl Ottoson played Mm -hmm. General Mark Grayson. 85 credits, including Journey to the Seventh Planet. He died in 1972 at the age of 53. Oli Weisborg, who played Captain Brandt, 43 credits. He died in 1978 at the age of 53. Kind of weird. The the one had the most credits, uh, but died kind of out of sync with everybody else, was Dirch Passer, who played Peterson, kind of the, the goofy 
comedic relief guy who's supposed to be watching over him. I was definitely getting Stephen King vibes from the creep show. I don't know. Yeah, that's good. So as I said, he was recognized as the greatest Danish comedian, 117 credits. He died in 1980 at the young age of 54 of a heart attack. Aside from Journey to the Seventh Planet and the one mention of House of a Thousand Dolls, they all did other stuff and it's stuff that we'll probably never see. It's all foreign stuff. But people over in Denmark would would know them, right? Because they're older movies. Reptilicus is what we got left from all of these actors. <laughs> that kind of says something. That's about all I've got on Reptilicus. I don't know what else to say about it. You know, I don't want to recommend people watch it necessarily, but if we've said anything that makes you think, oh, I've got to see this train wreck, I don't think it's a waste of time. I'm not saying not watch it. Watch it for free on Tubi. It's on Tubi as of right now. And then if you're like, wow, this is the greatest film. I want this in my collection. I must revisit this every year. There's the MGM Midnight Movies DVD that you can find relatively cheap out there. And it also got a Shout Factory Blu-ray double feature release paired up with Tentacles. Which I don't believe is available anymore. Or if it is, is out of print. I don't know if I said I watched it on Amazon Prime or not. I didn't. I watched it on Tubi. And, you know, in a movie like Reptilicus, a few commercials here and there certainly can't hurt. I don't know about you, but I've got some green acid slime I need to wash off my hands. So I want to run to the bathroom and then I'm sure I'll pick up another treat. We will be right back after this short break. Visit our snack bar and treat yourself to some delicious Castleberry's pit cooked barbecue sandwiches. Cook the Castleberry way slowly over open pits of glowing charcoal, then seasoned with a sauce that's zesty, yet delightfully mild to please the entire family. Also at the snack bar, you'll find popcorn and soft drinks and candy and French fries to go with your Castleberry's barbecue sandwiches. There's plenty of time before the movie starts, so visit our snack bar right now for Castleberry's pit-cooked barbecue sandwiches. Still plenty of time to come and be served at the refreshment center before showtime. Show starts in three minutes. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. And now, on with the show. Godzilla. Terror monster of the motion picture screen meets The Thing. Godzilla versus The Thing. Innocent looking, but so feared pagan man worshipped it. The battle of gigantic forces spreading terror across the world. Can man's inventions conquer them? See in color, terror scope. Godzilla versus the thing. Richard, look what I found at the concession stand. This is the biggest treat we could ever imagine. Well, it's it's Mr. Steve Turek. It sure is. Steve, what are you doing here? 
Well, I mean, I'm here to see movies, man. I saw Reptilicus. Just got done watching the Godzilla versus the Thing, and also Mothra versus Godzilla. I was able to find a way to watch both at the same time. If you stand at a certain spot <laughs> on the screen, the back side of the screen shows the Japanese, you know, subtitled version, while the other side showing the dubbed version. So I was able to see both simultaneously. It is amazing how they can do technology nowadays back in the past. <laughs> I'm impressed. I was able, I mean, I, I, I found that because somebody told me you could watch the Danish version and the English version of Rotilicus by doing that. And I, I, I thought they were pulling my leg. So I figured, well, I'll put it to the test. And by golly, when I was watching the opening credits, one of them had the subtitles and one of them was the dub. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I can live with this. And that, that made it, it was interesting to watch. We've talked for almost an hour about Reptilicus, but I cannot not ask you what you thought of it, Steve. Well, it was my first time watching this this Danish classic of a movie. And uh, being a fan of all giant monster movies, I, I, it has its charm. The monster design has its charm. It does remind me of a, a lesser version of the giant claw in its appearance. You know, So it's a giant claw to me was superior. Um, though, though I hear that the Danish version might be better with its appearance. I don't know. I haven't seen that one yet because I didn't know the trick. Uh, but now I know. The acting, well, people that really don't speak English were, were trying just to get the English across. It was very stilted. It was formulaic in its presentation. But, I mean, it still hits all the nice little sweet spots for somebody who grew up watching the monster movie on Saturdays when it was raining outside. At 2 p.m., it was monster movie theater. At 4 o'clock, it was sci-fi theater. And at 6 o'clock, it was kung fu theater. So, I mean, for a guy that grew up watching all those things, it was right in that wheelhouse. So it did remind me of that. The guy that told me about the, the tips of the Danish cut is superior. So I'm thinking of ordering and getting the Danish version of it down the road. Maybe, you know, put it on my birthday Christmas list. And that way I can see the differences to it and that kind of thing. But otherwise, I mean, it was enjoyable. It's it's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's definitely one worth watching if you're a monster movie fan, you know, especially from those 50, 60 monster movies, this, you know, the giant ones. you you got to see Reptilicus. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, I don't normally think of you as a kaiju guy. I know you love Godzilla, but I don't, with your podcast, diecast movie podcast you talk about all kinds of different genres of movies so i my head doesn't naturally go to oh let's call steve he's our kaiju guy but you really are you kind of mentioned maybe how you got into that but any other story about why you love godzilla so much i started watching godzilla movies and ultraman and all that stuff with my eldest brother rick because he's eight years older so we would watch those movies together um, the rest of the family, my, my, my middle brother, Joe, did watch some of them, but he was not really big in the monster movies. He, he would do it the past time. But my eldest brother and I would be the ones that would watch it most of the time. And eventually I was watching a lot by myself. Dumped versions always hold a special little joy to me because it reminds me of being that six-year-old up through 55. Let me turn 55 in October. You know, so it's like, you know, so it keeps reminding me from when I was 6 to 18, you know, watching all those great Showa era, Godzilla films, Toho films, 
and really enjoying it. Even though I know the subtitled versions, the acting's usually better because you're hearing the dialogue being spoken by the actors in their native tongue instead of being dubbed with somebody who's usually given a performance that could be kind of questionable at best. (laughs) To me, I still love Godzilla King of Monsters with Raymond Burr. Just because of that, because we begin to watch it so many times growing up. Perry Mason, it's Raymond Burr for crying out loud. And it's not like it's in this movie where the, the American actors are just there for a small couple of minutes. I mean, Raymond Burr's are a big chunk of the movie and it really affects it. Yes, Gojira is a superior movie, but having grown up watching Godzilla King of Monsters so many times, I mean, growing up, I must have seen that movie 40, 50 times. It's ingrained with me that. Godzilla, the king of the, you know, king of monsters. That's that's like the one that's always in there when I think of Godzilla first. And Gojira is the better one. But if I want to have that warm blanket on a cold day type feel, where you have your comfort food, nice bowl of tomato soup with grilled cheese sandwiches, and you're feeling cold, I want my Godzilla King of Monsters. I want my dubbed version. And I just want to enjoy that grilled cheese sandwich with a little bit of tomato soup and just have a smile on my face as I'm going through it. And you're speaking my language on multiple things there because tomato (laughs) soup, or as you said, tomato and grilled cheese, that's one of my favorite meals. Anytime I've ever had surgery, you know, my shoulder surgeries I had years ago, that was my go-to meal. I come home, tomato soup, grilled cheese. You throw a little bit of Godzilla in there and that, that sounds like heaven to me. My biggest question for both of you, since you knew the technology and Richard, I don't know how you did it, but you've seen both versions. I've seen the other version as well, but it's been so long, I can't remember. Are there significant differences between the original language and the dubbed version as far as structure or story elements, or is it just strictly the dubbing and the subtitles? There's a, a few minutes of difference, but really nothing significant. Not like not like Gojira and Godzilla King of Monsters, where it's a significantly different movie. The dialogue was pretty much the same, you know. So whether you're listening to the dubbed version or reading the subtitles, it's virtually plot-wise and everything the same movie. I mean, Mothra was referred to Mothra in the subtitled version and as she, and in the American version, it's the thing. And if I remember correctly, it's mostly referred to when it's, when it is as he instead of she. So it's like a gender switch there. There's a couple of significant differences of a couple minutes. One is you had that scene where the, the American military is being shown and you see the ships. You don't see that in the subtitled version. You know, So they're showing that brief little thing with the American version. You get to see the American flag. And the scene where the guy who buys the egg if the initial guy that buys the egg from the farmer or the fisherman, they're going to make it that newsman center. You see a scene with them at the, on the outside of their truck passing out flyers saying, come to the family, the amusement center, come to this. Now that, so that scene is in the subtitled one, but not the dubbed. And so it's, but if you look at the time, the overall time, it's not much of a difference, but that's really the big scene differential. One with the Americans and the other one with the truck. And at the very end, you see in the subtitled version, uh, the main people wave more and say goodbye more to the twins, the double set of twins. <laughs> yeah, you got to have that scene at the end. 
So I want to know in the subtitled version, do they say the children, they'll all be killed? Yeah, they they do. It doesn't come across as dramatic, (laughs) as laughable, manic, you know, I mean, yeah, as it does in the in the dubbed version. But I will say that the, the dubbed version is among the best of of the dub versions the other you know there there certainly are some where it's a little little cheesier what have you the dubbing is really good on this one there's a scene where the the one guy gets shot yeah they cut that a little bit you see him get shot you see the after effect in the dubbed version of him getting shot whereas the subtitle you actually see him get shot i mean it's two seconds maybe three and as Rick said, the du- the dubbing is is really done well. I mean, yeah, the guy's saying the children killed, but the performer that's performing is also performing over the top. <laughs> so the, it's one of those few times where the dubber who went over the top is matching the body language that he's probably seen from the other guy doing. It's like, well, he's looks like he's going over the top, so I'm just going to go with him. So I think if, if that it matched in, it was Rick said it was it's pretty seamless of a dubbed version compared to other Godzilla movies or sometimes they're phoning in them. And there's not a lot of difference between the release date in Japan and the release date in the U S which I think is also telling because uh, the Japanese release date was April 29th. The American release date was September 17th. There are some of the movies, I think it's invasion of the Astro monster. It was like what, four or five years and the order was was different. I mean, that movie came out like in 65, but it didn't come out in the U.S. until 70. But Destroy All Monsters, which came out three years after it in Japan, precedes it by two years in the U.S. Not that it matters much, but I mean, because there's by that point, the, there wasn't a lot of connectivity between, you know, the, the films. They were kind of standalone. But I think that also shows this movie was kind of good to go. American International Pictures did the American release. They didn't really have to do much to it. They got solid dubbing, a few minor little tweaks in the editing. There's a reason why this is considered by many to be one of the very best of this era of Godzilla films. It's a good movie, and they didn't have to do much with it to get it out to American audiences. Other than changing the name... They thought the thing would resonate more with American audiences than the name Mothra would. Maybe at the time, at this point, we would have only had, I'm trying to think what, this would have been, what's the fourth Godzilla film, right? In the second Mothra film. Godzilla was still gaining momentum at this point, in the U.S. at least. I wonder if anyone who saw it was disappointed by the the poster and then what was on screen because they they block the the other monster with a big placard that says something and some of the posters are really cool they have a big question mark yeah. but so these squiggly like tentacles and arms reaching around that placard to grab Godzilla and of course there's nothing like that in the movie yeah a little deceptive advertising there but I think if you didn't know but maybe you had seen Mothra before you were probably pleasantly surprised, like, oh, that's Mothra. We saw Mothra in, in the previous film, which is always kind of cool because you're connecting when Rodan was introduced. It's like, okay, well, that's part of this multiverse of films before we, we even knew what that was in the 1960s. The other thing I was wondering is 
there's so many movies it's hard to keep them in order, but I understand this is the last one that Godzilla was the bad guy. This is the last one where Godzilla is the heel in the Showa era, and he becomes the baby face after this, which is interesting. I love Godzilla. I hate movies with Godzilla. Not, I hate not like, like it's bad, but I hate it when Godzilla loses to another monster in the end. And of course, you know, you have, you have King Kong versus Godzilla. Then you have Mothra versus Godzilla. And I'm starting to wonder, like, I, I, I might have to check this out. I think when Godzilla was listed first, like Godzilla versus the small monster, when Godzilla versus whatever other thing, like in the Japanese order, Godzilla wins. But when Godzilla's <laughs> billed second, he seems to lose. Like the recent Godzilla versus Kong, he wins in that fight you know so so i'm starting to I'm, so I'm starting to figure out like oh whoever's listed first in the billing is going to win um in this one so technically you could make an argue that it, it, he lost because it became a tag team he didn't lose one of his mano a mano one one against one he had to lose when it became the twins versus godzilla and he wasn't expecting that it wasn't in the bill i mean come on he signed it with the promoter this is what it is. It's supposed to be me versus, you know, Moffer. Okay, and we're ready to go. No, so he wins that fight. He's like, yeah, I got this one. I'm just fighting the, the puny humans. Where are these two big things coming from? This isn't in the script. They totally ruined it for me. And next thing you know, he goes down. I mean, he had to get a better promoter. This fight was set up, and he was sandbagged. This was under protest, and that's why he switched from heel to babyface. He's like, man, the babyfaces, they get all the rules broken their way. I'm switching sides. So I oh. think that's why he joined the, that's why he drank the, the tea, he drank the Kool-Aid. He's like, I'm going to the good side. Gidra versus, Gidra the three-headed monster, but you, you know, with the big team up versus. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the next one. I always notice something different when I watch movies repeatedly. And I've never noticed before Godzilla, like when he moves his head, his cheeks or his jowls were kind of shaking. Like that was a, a level of detail that, I usually miss. I don't know if those Godzilla costumes usually have that. Well, I noticed his neck in this one was moving a lot. You know, like, and I think that's probably where, you know, they put the suit on the suit actors because there's two different guys, depending on which scenes, who was doing what. I think because they put it there, it wasn't as secured as well. Maybe because it was a new costume design. And you could see it like wobbling a little bit here. And it didn't take anything away, but it was just one of those things you notice on repeat viewing there was a new suit in this one but the water scenes they used the old suit from 1962 and that didn't happen all the time it was happening when he was in the fight scenes i think i noticed that the most i also read where the silk from from mothra was actually rubber glue it hardened a lot more than they anticipated so how do we like this in the pantheon of Godzilla films? Where do you put it? Where do I put it? Out of yeah. all the Godzilla films? You you like to organize and list things, Steve. So where does it fall in the in the we'll keep it easy, keep it to the Showa era. My favorite Showa era Godzilla film is Gidra versus the Gidra the Three-Headed Monster, or Godzilla versus Gidra, whatever you want to call it. The next one. That's my favorite because it's a big team up one. And they're doing, I just really love that one. Godzilla's first time being the baby face. I enjoy this one, but again, I don't put up as high as I would because he loses in the end. 
I, I, I like I like seeing my Godzilla wing. You know, Godzilla, king of monsters, was the first one I saw. So you expect the king to come out on top. And yes, you could say well, he was going against the queen of monsters in Mothra, but Mothra and the moth form didn't take him down. It was the offspring, the twins that did it. And again, that was not in the contract. I'm still you know, saying the technical foul there. <laughs> See, for me, I've got a lot of warm fuzzies towards Ghidra, the three-headed monster. I saw that at some point in the 70s. And, you know, I've seen that substantially more than Mothra, which I love Mothra, and it would certainly rank easily in my top five, maybe even my top three from the Showa era. But Ghidorah would definitely be above it simply because of nostalgia. I love the sound effects for Ghidorah, the heads moving and bobbing. Yeah, I've always loved that. I think Gojira is probably the best movie, but I always like to kind of, take Gojira and, and, and keep it separate because that movie is it, it's so serious and so dark mm-hmm. especially the original version Raymond Burr lightens it up a little bit but not much um, and it just it feels very much different in tone than certainly by the time we get to the 60s and things are lightened up a little bit you know Godzilla Writes Again is not nearly as serious as Gojira but it is certainly more serious than what we get with King Kong and, and Mothra and Ghidra. So I, I always like to keep that separate. Jeff. Actually, I think it is one of the the best over the years as I've watched them, I've rated it higher than any of the others. But like you say, Steve, there's a difference. It's not necessarily my favorite. And I don't want to be laughed off the show if I tell you my favorite, but What's your favorite? You know me. I'm a. I'm, my sweet spot is the '70s. Uh, Hedera, the Smog Monster. I love that movie. I love the theme song in that one more than anything. It's got that early '70s funky James Bond theme vibe going on. A lot of people, it's their favorite because they grew up watching. It was like their first oh. one they saw in the movie theater. So a lot of people I talked to, that's their favorite one. Coincidentally, I did see that at the drive-in Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, and that may well be the first Godzilla that I remember. Which fits in, you know, so so yeah. it all depends on people see things, just like I, with my Godzilla King of the Monsters, you know, it's just because I saw it so many times growing up. And it's just, yeah, nostalgia is always something, I think, for people that enjoy monster movies, classic horror films in general. When you saw it, you had that attachment with it as a child, especially, you know, those golden years when everything is new, you're like, wow. And you're not as jaded as we are now in our later years. We're like, oh, we've seen this before. So that to see it, if we saw it now, it might not work as well. But having saw it when we were lads, it works so much better and sticks with us for so long. And I think that that speaks to most of probably your listeners, too, where with different films. It's all when you see it. See, for me, I, I didn't see a Godzilla film on the big screen, it, you know, a Toho Godzilla film until... Godzilla 2000. That was my first time, you know, and because certainly in the 80s and, and 90s, none of those films were getting theatrical releases. Well, and that's the what is it? The Godzilla 80, 1984, I think, was in the theaters, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, but after that, they they weren't. So Godzilla, yeah, 2000. Not my favorite film, but I've always got nostalgic feel for it because I remember being in the theater and Godzilla coming on the screen, and I'm like. This is pretty cool. 
this is pretty cool. But I haven't seen very many Godzilla films on the big screen, you know, aside from the American films. The only other uh, Toho film that I've seen on the big screen would be Shin Godzilla, <laughs> which I actually saw that twice. And that's probably one of my least favorite Godzilla films. I was lucky enough to go to um, when Monster Bash a few years ago had their film festival, which they have every year in August for the last several years, except during the COVID years. And one of them was giant monster movies. So they had Gojira and they had um, King Kong versus Godzilla. There were the two um, Godzilla movies that were there. They also had the giant claw and, and them and those kind of things. So most of those scenes for the first time ever on the big screen. And Ben came with me, my older son, and he was seeing a lot of them for the first time. And then he's seeing them the way it's meant to be in a theater on the big screen. Oh, the giant claw was just spectacular. But we're not here to talk about the giant claw. That movie is better on the big screen. I've seen that on the big screen, too. And it just it does improve that film substantially. Kind of caught me off guard. I and it just makes me wonder. I mean, it's not unusual, but when they go to the island, they bring up again the nuclear testing and how it's devastated the island and all that. And I think as they go on, that kind of fades away, doesn't it? Or is that always a message in these movies? Oh, you mean in the future movies? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously it's in the first one. I don't remember the ones before it, but as they go on, I guess I was surprised it was at this point in the series, it was such a big plot point. Well, Infant Island which is the island, it depends on which version, that's another thing different in the versions, is what they call the island. When it was shown in Mothra, there was damage, but this one, it's more damaged. It's shown more stark. You're seeing skulls everywhere, skeletons and all that kind of stuff, and they're they're constantly commenting about who could live here. And they do talk about it in pretty good detail during that part of the movie. And radiation is brought up, but they had to get... um, decontaminated from radiation because they had one of God's, they found one of Godzilla's scales and uh, that was highly radioactive. At least I think that's Godzilla's scale. To me, I always thought that I think that's what they found in the beginning of the movie in the water. It's always there. Honda is always going to be having that, that radiation thing that ties in so well with the first movie. And I think here it does show it again about why would anybody want to do this if they could see this they would never want to do it it's a message that still resonates today as much as it did then but i think to me the big theme in the movie that still it works decades later is the unity theme everybody has to help each other out in order to get this done where they they needed to get the help from the people from the island and mothra in order to have a chance against godzilla and realizing that they all have to work together. You can look at it in a lot of ways. Yes, it's these people coming to say, well, we don't want to help you because where were you guys when all this nuclear testing was going on? You weren't here to help us, so why should we help you? And if everybody does that, basically, let's look at the neighbor policy type thing. Like If your neighbor's having a struggle, but they didn't help you when you were having a struggle, does that mean you shouldn't help them? And if nobody ever helps each other, then we all fall apart. We're you know, divided, we fall, united, we stand. And I think that's the message this movie is trying to get across. Then again, you could also look at it in a cynical way. Are the Islanders being taken advantage of again for what they need, but yet are never going to get anything back from 
the prop, you know, Jap- Japan proper, you know, like there's nothing that the government's obviously not going to do anything for them because it's not them making the promise. It's these scientists and two reporters. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we, we, they can't even say they're going to help them. So they know they're going into this with nothing and they're probably going to get nothing in return. And you see that with cultures all the time. Well, it's like, oh, if you help me, we'll help you. And you help them and you get nothing because they have no need for you anymore. And that still happens all the time. So you can look at it a positive way or a cynical way, depending on, you know, whether you're a glass half full or half empty type person. But I think that message still holds true decades prior to this movie and decades after this movie. Actually, probably centuries prior to this movie. And this is the thing that's been around since as long as humankind has been around. Ashira Honda supposedly wanted to do more on Impen Island. He wanted to show more of the nuclear wasteland aspect of it. We get a hint of it, but budgetary constraints prevented him from, from having the real vision that he wanted for the island. And I also read the change that was happening. Of course, as we said, this was the last film where Godzilla is the, you know, quote unquote villain of the piece. He becomes more the hero. And that was partially by design because Japan was becoming more optimistic. They were looking towards the future. They they were wanting to not necessarily forget the past, but they spent a long time dwelling on the atomic bomb blast. And now they, they were prospering. Japan was doing better. They were starting to look forward and not back so much. And that kind of is, is a part of the Godzilla films going forward with Godzilla being less of the threat and being more as the savior, it's a much more optimistic view, if you will. It's like the villains, there was that, the monster of every film was always the one causing problems. But here we've got somebody coming to save the day. It's not Godzilla just coming to destroy Tokyo. He's there to, to try to help them. And even as we, by the time we get to the 70s, it's even more so that Godzilla by that point is really solidified as the hero. I agree with part of that point. I just want to add on. I think also, and this movie st- stated this too, in that they were trying to make a movie that was good for children and adults, like family friendly for all ages. But a lot of future productions, they were aiming strictly for the kids. Yeah. So that's another reason why they flipped Godzilla to the baby face because, you know, I mean, hey, it's more popular with the kids going to sell more merchandise which is good and bad for certain properties lost in space voids to the bottom of the sea were great tv shows their first season and both i, I think in both both seasons because they focused on family friendly entertainment and then they found that oh it's the youngsters particularly boys or whatever that they're watching it so then they all suddenly like oh we're going to just program it straight for them and then they then they wonder why they disappear after a couple of seasons because they lose their audience. But the second season, people are like, wait, but this isn't what we were expecting. They've really dumbed it down. And then the third season, they just pretty much eroded virtually everybody. It usually dies out after that third or fourth season. The first season of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea was really, there was a lot of espionage. And then if you were to take an episode from that and then take an episode from the last season, they're battling the space monster or the sea monsters. Lost in Space, those first five episodes for Dr. Smith, he's a villain. The robot's not the friendly, bubble-headed booby that he would become later on. You take those first five episodes and compare it to the Great Vegetable Rebellion episode where they're battling a giant carrot, night and day, totally. 
there was a few times where they would kind of tackle maybe a serious topic, pollution, for example. But even then, in, in Godzilla versus Hedra, right, there's the animated sequences that I don't want to say lighten the mood, but it kind of does a little bit because it's animated, you know, and, and that movie is probably one of the darker films of that time period because what Jet Jaguar comes along in the next movie or two. All of these movies have a story behind what we came to see, you know. What do we think of this one with and the characters? We've got the reporter, the photographer, and the scientist, right? Those are our three people that are trying to convince the people on Infinite, the twins and the natives to help them. And but then that whole story with selling the egg and making a profit and screwing the fishermen out of their money that they deserve. What do we think of all that? I've always loved the peanuts. You just gotta love them. The fairy twins, whatever you want to call them, but the, the, the ones that communicate with Malfra, the weed of the lasses that are like what six inches tall. And this one, and with the female photographer, they actually have some bigger roles than, than, than what the females normally get in some of these movies of this particular you know, the kind. A lot of times the peanuts are, are kidnapped and they're held hostage. In this one, they attempt to do it, but they never get it pulled off. They always elude them. And they're the ones that end up brokering the deal, so to speak, to help this out because they're able to communicate with Malfra. Malfra will do that. Those kind of things. They had the more level-headedness. They were more of the conscious. And the photographer was able to have the winning argument to get Malfra's aid. And there was other things that she was able to do, like when the reporter was trying to get one more question from the professor when he'd obviously had enough, she was able to get that by charming a little bit after a photo flashing bombing them, you know, like blinding them for a second. She was able to charm and say, okay, ask your question. You know, you know, one more question. Okay, ask it. And so she was, you know, showing a lot of stuff that she was able to do. And it wasn't like the damsel in distress type. That was refreshing and nice to see. So overall, I like the human characters, the storyline with the greed, you know, going in through. And I mean, there's always that human story that you have to buy into a little bit, which sets up the stuff. That one didn't help me as much, I think. But the storyline of them trying to get the help from the Islanders and Mafra, that storyline carried me through. The greed storyline, I mean, it works. It's there, but it's not something I found that was the second time I was watching it. And recently, it was it, that, that story. And I was just, I was just kind of tuning it out, you know, compared to the other things. So I don't think that holds up to repeated doing on a short period of time compared to um, the other part. The villains get their just desserts at the end. That's not always cleanly wrapped up in some of the other Godzilla films. Sometimes it's left a little more vague. This one, they dispatch them, and, and really before we even get to the big battle scene, it's like their fates have been sealed. They're done. Now let's let's just focus on the big battle. Because then at that point, that's that's what you're there to see, the main event. You know, because then once that's done, there's not much to wrap up because they've already wrapped up. And I could be wrong. I'm not remembering, but there's not a romance, is this in this one, is there between the reporter and the photographer? So that's kind of refreshing too, because usually they're a couple. There was definitely some 1960s misogyny there, right? Because uh, you know, just hurry up, take a picture, do this. But she kind of stands her ground. She she holds her own, which is 
also not very common for this time period. It's refreshing to see. We get it sometimes in, in the monster films, but nine times out of 10, we get introduced to a female scientist and she's strong in her very first scene. But then at some point, you know, by mid movie, she's falling into the arms of, of the male hero and they're getting married at the end of the film. You know, it's like, that's, that's kind of the pattern here. No love story. And she, she holds her own. I don't think it was misogyny in this. I think that was just because he was the veteran reporter and she was the brand new photographer. I don't think it was because she was a female. It was just the way he was, it was the hierarchy in the system. Of, okay. of why treating that way. Because it, it doesn't really say it was. I mean, you could read it that way. But I think it was just the way it was the system. Like, oh, come on, rookie. We're not, we just, I just want to get it done. And I think that's part of the thing is because the reporter really didn't want to be doing that job. He's just like, oh, I got to do this. It's not said, but you, you, if somebody wants to get something done quick, they really don't want to be there. Does subtitles with the natural language and dubbing, can that make a difference in how we perceive the reporter's attitude towards the photographer? In the American version, he there was something. He was hard, very harsh with her. I mean, that was noticeable. And I just wonder... Does it come across differently in the original version? In the original version, it came across about the same. Okay. Uh, there was more words that he was saying because the subtitle was longer, but he was going about it. And I think they showed her just a little bit longer setting up the shot. So you saw her going about, like she's doing this thing, she's measuring. It's like, they, like Rich and I said, there's like sometimes an extra second or two of footage to a scene. I think that was one that had an extra second or two. You know, Rich is a dear, dear friend of mine, but you know what I really want to hear right now? I want to hear him try to pronounce some Japanese names. So, Rich, should we go into the cast? Ah, okay. We butchered the Danish pronunciation, so why not? We'll just head over to Japan and just insult them. I'm sorry. We have... Akira Takarada as Ichiro Sakai, the journalist. A lot of other Godzilla films and Toho films to his credit, uh, including some films, uh, the very last uh, film of the, I forget the name of the era now, the Godzilla Final Wars that wrapped up that particular era, uh, as well as like uh, King Kong Escapes and uh, Latitude Zero. He was also in Gojira, the very first film, in a smaller role. We have... Hiroshi Koizumi as Professor Mariura. He actually played the same role again in the next film, which is a bit rare. We have a lot of familiar faces, but they don't always play the same roles. But he does play it in, in Ghidra, the Three-Headed Monster. He had previously played in Mothra. He played Dr. Sanichi Kujo. And he actually also showed up one of the later films, Godzilla Tokyo SOS in 2003. We have Kenji Sahara as the financial backer, Jiro Torahata. A lot of credits. Gojira, Rodan, Mysterians, Ultra Q. Yoshifumi Tajima as Kumiyama of Happy Enterprises. Also in Mothra, different role, also in Ultra Q. Uh, and of course, we have uh, Imi and Yumi Ito as the... Shobijin, or the Twin Fairies, or the Peanuts, as they were billed commercially. They were in Mothra, 
And they were in this film. They were also in Ghidra, the three-headed monster. And then I believe they recast them. They were only in three of these films. Uh, Emmy actually died in 2012 at the age of 71. Yumi lived another four years. She lived till 2016. She passed away that year at the age of 75. And we would be remiss if we didn't mention Harui Nakajima. Haru Nakajima? Haru Nakajima. Okay. Uh, he played Godzilla. He uh, appeared in 12 consecutive films from the original Gojira in 54 up through Godzilla vs. Gigan in 1972. We lost him not too many years ago, 2017, at the age of 88. He's considered by many to be the Godzilla suit actor. I think I remember reading one time, I didn't double research this. I think he had appendicitis and he did an epidectomy while he was in the suit. I don't know how they did it all, but from what I read, this is the guy who was dedicated and just loved doing it. And from people that had met him when he would go to G-Fest, yeah, G-Fest. he would go to G-Fest and he just loved the fans, especially the young fans. I've never had the pleasure of ever meeting him, but I've met people that knew him and worked with him and talked to him and they just loved him and he just loved them. And it's, even though the language was different, the love he would give to all these these youngsters and um, older fans, it was just, you could tell he had that joy of knowing that he helped bring that apart. He's, he's sorely missed. Steve, the language of love is universal. <laughs> the language of Godzilla is universal. I agree with you. <laughs> the writer, Shinichi Sekizawa, who also did films such as Mothra, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Atragon, and Varan, the unbelievable. Unbelievable. I was going to say Invincible, but that didn't sound right. And of course, directed by Ishiro Honda, or as the U.S. print called him, Inoshiro Honda. Legend in with Toho and Godzilla films and, and so many films to his credit, including the original, Matango, The Human Vapor, H-Man. We lost him way back in 1993. And I didn't know this actually until this, when I was doing research for this, I didn't realize that Akira Kurosawa did his eulogy. You know that you've got a measure of, of uh, royalty when Akira Kurosawa is doing your eulogy. I don't think I butchered those too bad. No, so, you you do, you sell yourself short. You do a great job. I butchered some of those Danish names, so I redeemed myself with the uh, Japanese. What I did not hear were any Star Trek or Doctor Who references. Maybe Steve can help us out. Maybe he can. This is a stretch <laughs> for Star Trek. But when I was watching this movie, again, for the second time recently, it, I had an epiphany with Godzilla's acting and a certain thing that happens in a, in a Shatner film that would happen later than this. All right. We all know, and I'm sure, I think you guys have covered this, that classic Shatner movie, Kingdom of the Spiders. Yeah. And everybody's covered in webs. And with Godzilla, he's covered in the silk or the webs, the webbing, so to speak. And he is overacting like the Shatner <laughs> would in that thing. And I'm watching this, I'm like, my God, he's Shatner before Shatner. Did William Shatner see this movie and get inspiration for his acting portrayal in Kingdom of the Spiders? That is something that would be a great fan fiction to read. Shatner's lessons from Godzilla. 
That gets an A for effort, for sure. Yeah, I give him an A-plus for that. Somewhere in the multiverse, Shatner played Godzilla. I'm positive now. There, there's a connection. Or maybe Godzilla played Captain Kirk. I don't know. The multiverse can be a strange place. That's as good a connection. It's certainly more than I got. I, I couldn't come up with any. Got to get these last two things in on the credit before I forget. We Of course, we had the music by Akira Fukube which is always fantastic, and special effects by uh, E.G. Subaraya. You had top list talent involved in this one, which I think really is why this film is one of the best, certainly. The only other little tidbit I had, uh, apparently in one of the early drafts of the script, the villains were actually supposed to be the Resilicans that were in... Mothra, the foreign power or whatever that was featured, I think wisely went a different direction. So the Resilicans were a thinly veiled version of the U.S. Yeah. Maybe because you wouldn't have the U.S. backing and get the thing in there. That that could have been another one of the reasons why it got pulled out, so to speak. You want to see where your market's going to be. And if you, you know, not just Japan, but you also want to get some of that that nice driving money that's hanging over at the U.S. Exactly. Any last words? We'll let Steve have the last. Rich, you got anything else? No, I absolutely enjoy this every time I get a chance to see it. You know, I think it's probably one of the easier films to find out there. If someone's wanting to play along at home, at least as we speak right now, it is on Tubi, it's on Plex, it's on Pluto TV which they have their own Godzilla channel and all of it's on demand. So you can either watch on the channel or you can just press play. There's commercials, but Hey, it's a Godzilla channel. It's on the criterion channel and it's on max. All of that though, is the subtitle version as Jeff, you and I and Jonathan were talking, it is harder to find the dubbed version, which is the opposite of what it was just 15 years ago. If you want to find the English dub version of Godzilla versus the thing, it is available on archive.org. It's a good copy. Uh, it's it's probably the best you're going to find. And if you're looking for it uh, to add to your own personal collection, I think the definitive version is in the Criterion release. Godzilla, the Showa era films, which is running about 130 bucks right now on Amazon. It's gone up a little bit, but it's still in print. Easy film to get a hold of. I highly recommend it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Jeff, what about you? Yep, it's one of my favorites. I think what I like of it, it's a little more complex than most of the movies. I mean, it has the island and Mothra and the twins and the eggs and the, what do you call the ones that spit out the silk? The larva form of Mothra. Yes, the larva, larva, larva. I I just think it, it makes the story more intricate. I definitely like it. One of, not, the favorite, but one of my favorites. Steve? One of the things that I don't think we've touched on too much, I just want to bring in, I love the miniature work. Craftsmanship to the miniatures is just spectacular. The, set, the settings that get destroyed, the tanks, everything, you know, the vehicles. It's just nice when you see things that are made, and you know they're spending a long time making them, and they're going to get destroyed. It's like a model builder's worst nightmare for you know, the rest of us, we build these models, we spend all this time, and, and then the, our kids come by and play with them and destroy them. But in their particular case, they're getting paid good money to build those things and have them get wrecked. 
the story of a special effects guy's life. Spend weeks on something for five seconds of screen time or 10 seconds. I really enjoyed the themes of the movie. The fight scenes are good, except Godzilla losing in the end, which I've already stated. Godzilla should never lose. I don't care. He could fight Superman, but they're going to be doing a comic book where it's Godzilla versus the Justice League of America. He should beat them all. I don't care. Superman's one of my favorite characters, but when it goes against Godzilla, Superman, you're going down because you're going to come out kryptonite breath. I mean, he'll find a way. He's going to take you out. <laughs> That's the way Godzilla rolls. Because Toho ain't going to allow Godzilla to lose to Superman. So hopefully the Peanuts, the twins will be there and broker the deal. <laughs> it's a good movie. It's a fun movie. It's enjoyable. And uh, it, it's, whatever version you watch, you're going to see a, a solid film. So easy to find. I want to thank you both for allowing me to sit here with you while I'm waiting for Conga to start because earlier Conga was running, the, the film, you know, happens, you know, it, it just broke. They said they were going to have it fixed. So it's going to be playing at the end of the building. So it looks like they're giving the sign that Conga, I paid my money. I might as well watch all four movies that are here. And what better to follow up Godzilla versus the thing than the mighty Conga? We can never make it past the double feature when there's more than two movies at these drive-in screenings. You know, we've got a long way in time and distance to go to get home. But I'm glad we ran into you. You are closing out the fourth annual 2023 Summer at the Drive-In. This is our last movie of the summer. It's our last movie for this year. Thank you very much, Steve. I mentioned Diecast at the beginning, but we didn't really give you a chance. Is there anything you want to say what you're doing or what is going on right now you want to publicize? Lug away. For those that don't know the show, Diecast Movie Podcast, we do two main types of episodes. Most episodes, about half the episodes, I should say, is where a die is rolled to decide the genre of the movie we're going to discuss, which both Jeff and Rich have participated on um, uh, several times. Sometimes we do a retrospective series, which you guys joined me for a couple of times for that, where we did the James Whale retrospective. And the other half of the episodes are interviews, which range from the actors, directors, all the way through to special effects, composers. So just a hodgepodge of different things. Coming up in the horror thing, probably in September or very early October, I'll be having Troy Gwynn joining me to talk about The Devil Incarnate, or also known as The Traveler, also known as El Comanente, that Paul Nashy classic, which during that, I, I saw it for the first time, I, and I likened it to when Rich and I did The Seventh Seal. And if you're going to get somebody to talk about Paul Nashy, there's like three people to get that I know, and I'm lucky to be friends of all three of them. Troy Gwynn is one. Troy Howith is another. And, of course, the legendary Rodney Barnett. One interview that will be coming out just before this episode of yours leaks out, Brendan Faulkner. Now, most people don't know who Brendan Faulkner is, but he is a director, and he did a movie called Spookies and had an interesting background talk to it about there's two different directors, how the film happens. It has an interesting backstory about what goes down. He also worked with George Romero in Dawn of the Dead. It's an over two-hour-long interview. So you really want to learn a lot about some behind-the-scenes thing with productions and stories that you probably don't hear anywhere else. It'll be episode 
177 of the Diecast Movie Podcast. On the Diecast Show, we also do a subsidiary podcast called Hammerama with my good friend Alistair Hughes from New Zealand. We're on a brief little summer hiatus. Since you were here the last time, we have some other news. You are an award winner. You won the Forey Award at Monster Bash this year. Thank Ron Adams and the, the guys of, that run the Monster Bash for honoring me with a Lifetime Achievement Award. It's an award you cannot run for, ask for, do anything for, lobby for. gets bequeathed to you because people enjoy what you do. I was flabbergasted to get it. And I think what made it very special was, one, Ben was with me, my oldest son, who's as listeners in the, our show knows, he's done a lot of the episodes, sometimes behind the scenes, but he's also on the show a lot. So he was there. And also Jeff Rich were there too, Chris McMillan, you know, some other people I know. But it was just so nice because you guys hadn't been to Monster Bash in quite a while for various reasons. And here it's your first time back. So it's nice to get an award. It's, you, know, you get an award, it's like, you know, some people, but you're not really that close of people. And this one, it was like, ah, oh, you know, there's friends here. The timing was perfect for it in a lot of ways. Thank you again. We are going to hit the road. Everyone else will be back for some new business on our drive home. And now, folks, it's time to say good night. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. You mentioned that drive-in book called The American Drive-In Movie Theater by Don and Susan Sanders. It's a really well put together book. And I thought this was kind of funny when I was looking at the, the history of the book. The book was first published in 1997 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So your neck of the woods. The 2013 version comes from Crestline Books. I think you can find this fairly easy. It is broken down into some interesting contents of the way they've got it down in chapter one preview of coming attractions 1900 to 1945 chapter two first feature 1945 to 1955 intermission second feature monsters and mayhem the comeback kid sources for further reading and viewing it is really a, a fascinating history of drive-in theaters a ton of information i didn't know a ton of really cool pictures of original architect drawings of, and, and things that they envisioned for drive-in theaters. There's some clips of promotions and some clips from a lot of pictures of drive-ins, both in their prime and in their dying days. And it really is an incredibly fun book. There is a really weird thing where they refer to drive-in theaters as Ozoners which I have never heard that terminology before, but the author likes to use that. So apparently in their circle of friends, that is something that's been discussed. Highly recommend you check it out if you have an interest in the history of the drive-in movie theater. Sounds great. You know what else sounds great? A whole slew of physical media coming out in the next couple of months. We've had a lot of announcements since our last episode. I think shortly after that, we learned that Shout, oh, and it's Shout Studios now, not Shout Factory. Did you notice that? I did, yeah, I caught that. 
So they are releasing on September 12th the Irwin Allen Master of Disaster box set. And there are some TV movies in there that I have not been able to find for the TV Terror Guide because they're not available. So I'm looking forward to that. They're also releasing on the same day The Pack, which is a 1977 Nature Gone Wild movie with dogs. From Arrow, I believe, out now is a box set, Gothic Fantastic Before Italian Tales of Terror. And that includes Lady Morgan's Vengeance, The Blancheville Monster, The Third Eye, and The Witch. Criterion is going to have a big month in October, almost almost every week something's coming out don't look now is coming out october 3rd october 10th videodrome and on october 17th this is the headliner a todd browning box set that includes the unknown and the mystic are both silent films right right so it's just early films of todd browning not they're not all silent no no i mean freaks is 32 the Unknown is, is 20, 1927, and I think The Mystic is 1928. I'm interested in this one for sure. Did you hear about Vinegar Syndrome's new label? I think I must have typed it in or spell corrected or something. I've got written down melamine, which I don't know that that's it. But here's what they said about it. You've heard about it. You've read about it. And at last, you can see it for yourself as today marks the official launch of Vinegar Syndrome's sister site, Ah, it is something different. It's E-L-U-S-I-N-E, losing. The new home for all things sexploitation and classic hardcore. (laughs) Okay. Vinegar Syndrome is already kind of pushing the envelope. I know. Yeah. yeah. They've had to create a special sub-site for for these. Good Lord, what are they going to do? You get the two biggies this time. Tell us what else is coming out. Yeah, two big announcements have come out uh, as we record this, what, just in the last week. Um, Severin has got another great box set coming out. Release date is October 17th. Pre-orders are being taken now for Cushing Curiosities. This is a box set featuring five feature films, six BBC teleplays, 16 plus hours of special features, and a 200-page book. You know, this is in line with the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee, Volumes 1 and 2. These are some more obscure films, but then you've also got some some really good stuff here. So, and some stuff I've never even heard of. All of it is definitely piqued my interest. You have a 1960 film, uh, and no, this is not Get Smart, The Cone of Silence. <laughs> this is one of his rare villain roles, apparently, Uh, Hailed by the British Film Institute as one of the 10 essential films. I've never heard of it. I want to see it. You've got the 1960 film Suspect, one of his non-horror performances. Then The Man Who Finally Died from 1962. So I guess there's two films on one Blu-ray here. And this one apparently has Cushing in one of his most sinister roles as the family friend of a jazz pianist who uncovers a post-war conspiracy of suspicious deaths, switched identities, and a shocking Nazi past. Uh, On two discs, you've got the 1968 BBC Sherlock Holmes television series. Now, they have released this previously on DVD. I have them. The two-part story, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, You're also getting A Study in Scarlet, The Blue Carbuncle, The Boscombe Valley Mystery, and The Sign of Four. And I believe, if I'm looking through the special features, 
lost segments which have been recently recovered are going to be included. Also, the 1971 film Bloodsuckers, which also stars Patrick McNee, is the most maligned and misunderstood horror film of Peter Cushing's career. And apparently this is now scanned in 2K from the original negative with additional elements from a recently discovered 35mm vault print, including the uncut psychedelic orgy sequence for the first time (laughs) ever. Just what we wanted to see, Peter Cushing and Patrick McNee in an orgy sequence. (laughs) We also have Tender Dracula from 1974, never before available on disc in North America, the first and only film in which Peter Cushing plays a vampire from the original Paris Vault Negative, authorized by the director. On sale now, you can save 30% if you do the pre-order. Apparently, some stuff on here is region-free, some is not. Apparently, Tender Dracula is region A. If you are outside the U.S., you're going to have to be aware. Everything is playable in the U.S. Not everything is playable outside the U.S. Other big announcement. Uh, a bit more obscure, but I had piqued my interest. I am familiar with Todd Slaughter. A lot of his films have been available in public domain sets. Indicator is coming out with The Criminal Acts of Todd Slaughter, Eight Blood and Thunder Entertainments, 1935-1940, limited edition. This is region-free, limited edition box set of 6,000 numbered units for the UK and U.S., have you ever seen a Todd Slaughter film? Yes, I have. I've seen a couple. British melodrama. Real quick, the movies included are Maria Martin or The Murder in the Red Barn, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. No, not the version with Johnny Depp. The Crimes <laughs> of Stephen <Steve> Hawk. <laughs> it's Never Too Late to Mend. The Ticket of Leave Man. Sexton Blake in the Hood of Terror. The Face at the Window. And Crimes at the Dark House. Not all of these are public domain. Not all of these have been available previously. This is coming out November 20th. It's going to come with all sorts of extras, audio commentaries. I'm sure it's going to have a book. Yes, a limited edition, exclusive 120-page book with new essays by several people, including excerpts from Todd Slaughter's unpublished memoirs, archival essays, reviews, and film credits. They've also got a thing right now, a bundle in the month of August that you can also get the Todd Slaughter biography, an extra $20 or so if you order it. You're technically, I think you're getting more in this than you're getting for the Peter Cushing, but it's not Peter Cushing. $65 though, not bad for all these films and all the extras that you get with it. And one quick thing to add, it's not a movie, but I posted this on our Facebook group page, Amok Time Toys has a line called Monstars, M-O-N-S-T-A-R-Z, a Don't Be Afraid of the Dark Collector's 12-inch replica that looks awesome. Amazing. $59.99. If the quality matches the picture, man, it's tempting. Yeah, remember, 12 inches, is that like the actual size from the movie, or is that bigger or smaller than... Well, gosh... I think they were bigger than that, but not much. Jeff, what are you doing on your blog and in your world and in your omniverse? Well, I have some things cooking, some refreshing of the the website. I haven't decided exactly how I'm going to proceed. So it might either be a kind of a, a quiet month 
or it would be business as usual. So a movie review on Monday, TV Terror Guide on Friday. Just gearing up for October because there's going to be no being quiet in October. How about you? What do you got going on? I am going to be doing a series of articles in the month of September, a theme, Santo September. Oh, I am going to be doing five Santo films for the site, and I am going to be covering both films from the Inter Santo box set, Santo versus the Evil Brain from 1961 and Santo versus Infernal Men from 1961. These are the two films that really started the Santo series, and they these are the two films that were filmed in Cuba. Then I'll be covering Santo versus Dr. Death, which also got a Blu-ray release that went very quickly out of print. That's a 1973 Santo movie, so about midway in his career. And then I'm going to end out the month with his last two films, which are currently available on Tubi, Santo in the Fist of Death and Santo in the Fury of the Karate Experts, both from 1982. Santo September, every Friday in the month of September. Do we have five Fridays? I was just double-checking. Yes, <laughs> we do. Okay. Yes, we do. We have five Fridays, starting uh, nice. Friday. September well, then that's just perfect. Yeah. Starting Friday, September 1st, and going through Friday, September 29th. What are we going to do next month? Not going to the drive-in. No, we aren't. Our theme next month almost seems like we're doing a precursor to Halloween, and that's not a bad thing. We are going to be doing a Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe double feature, kind of, sort of, with a little bit of Lovecraft, The Haunted Palace, the 1963 classic with Vincent Price and Lon Chaney Jr. It is uh, easy to find. It's streaming on Amazon Prime, Criterion Channel, Paramount Plus, and as we speak, it's on Shudder. The Arrow video is available in the UK, and if you are in the US, it's part of the Vincent Price Collection Volume 1 on Blu-ray from Shout Factory, as it was known then. The other movie is the one less talked about, and that's why we're doing it. The Premature Burial from 1962, not with Vincent Price, but with Ray Milland, and I've never seen that one. Uh, it is streaming on Plex, Tubi, Criterion Channel, and the Roku Channel. The Kino Lorber Studio Classics DVD, you can get it for about 20 bucks. I don't believe this has had a Blu-ray release yet. It's out there, not as easily found as The Haunted Palace, but you can find it. That's your homework for our Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe theme for next month. Sounds fun. I searched high and low for a good song to go out on. I wanted something to represent Mothra. And I... Yeah, I think we can make this work. It's called The Moth. It is by La Du Love Orchestra, produced in 2017 by Bobby Woods, and it was written by Amy Mann. Thank you, everybody, for listening and joining us this summer at the drive-in. We will see you next month. Take care, everyone.
Them 